Welcome to another episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore of America's past. The show is hosted by Cody Beck and Troy Taylor, and we are continuing our third season, which we call Murdered in Their Beds. If you're tuning into the podcast for the first time, we recommend going back to episode 36 and start the new season from there. It's the first part in the series, and it marks the beginning of the transient butcher's reign of terror in the Midwest in the early 1900s. Each episode will not only explore the killer's horrific crimes, but will explore the effect that he's had on the small railroad towns of the region, especially the town of Villisca, Iowa. So bolt the doors and windows, hide the axe, and get ready for the next installment of Murdered in Their Beds. It's hard for us to imagine now, in these days of forensics, fingerprinting, and most wanted lists, how long the Moore-Stillinger murder case continued to drag on. By 1915, Burns agency detective James Wilkerson was still plowing ahead with his case against Frank Jones. He was making progress, he believed, with proving his conspiracy theory. He had at least one motive, the statement from Vena Tompkins and the alleged wielder of the axe, William Mansfield. He'd also worked the colorful Guthrie County gang into the mix. There were still a lot of loose ends and pieces that didn't make sense, and you know, his theory was never a finished product, but he had the basic plot for a document that he would later call his dope sheet in the language of the detective stories of the era. He continued to work on the potential witnesses and perhaps most importantly, was continuing to find local financial support to continue the investigation. The state of Iowa had started to balk at providing funds. They paid the Burns Agency about $800 at that point, but only about $107 of that was paid in 1915. Burns was paying detectives around $100 a month, probably more for Wilkerson, and they charged $10 per day for his services plus expenses, which means that the attorney general paid for only a few days of Wilkerson's work in 1915. The rest was covered by the county and, most importantly, by family and friends of the victims who had bought into the wild story that he had concocted. Wilkerson later claimed that the state stopped paying him when it became evident that he was building a case against Senator Jones, but this wasn't true. Even after reviewing Wilkerson's reports from the Vena Tompkins interview and his letter written after the failed interview with Frank Jones, the state continued to fund a portion of the investigation. Attorney General Cosin and his assistant, Henry Sampson, were interested in the Jones investigation, and there's no indication that they ever did anything to obstruct it, even if they should have. But the operation was funded by the legislature, whose members associated with Frank Jones in the state capitol when the Senate was in session. This likely caused a few mixed feelings. In addition, the legislature had very good reason to question the methods and ethics of the Burns operative. This likely led Wilkerson to look for local funding for the investigation rather than trying to find money on the state level. And by the time the fall of 1915 was over, Wilkerson would destroy any chance for future cooperation from the attorney general. Perhaps because there was so little money coming in from the Villisca case, Wilkerson got involved in another murder case in 1915. He made a trip to Kansas that summer to investigate the murder of a young woman named Nellie Byers. 
Also that same summer, in a courtroom in Missouri, he obtained a divorce from his wife, Minnie. The couple had divorced once before and remarried. While none of this had anything to do with the Velisca murders, the time would come when Frank Jones would start an investigation of his own, and both the divorce and the Nellie Byers case would become important to his case. Nellie Byers was an attractive young woman from Grant County, Kansas. She received her teaching certificate in 1915 and accepted a position at a country school in the southwestern part of the county. As many teachers did in those days, Nellie made arrangements to board with farm families who lived in the area. At the time of her murder, she was living with the Elson family, but had been invited to stay with others in the area too. She was popular and well-liked, and families were happy to offer her room and board. The Elson house was about two miles from the school where she taught, down a narrow road that crossed the Cimarron River. Nellie's daily walk to school took her past the farm of an elderly couple named Henson. A few weeks before her death, a young man named Archibald Sweet came to live with the Henson family. He and the Henson's son, Clint, had met in jail, and when Sweet got out and needed a place to live, the Hensons took him in. Sweet did little to better himself after getting out of jail. During the time he lived with the Hensons, he drank a lot, but didn't do much else. Rumor had it that he consumed nearly a quart of liquor every day, as he later admitted he had on the day of the murder. Nellie's walk took her past the Henson farm, and she soon started telling friends that she was afraid of Sweet. She didn't like the way that he stared at her or the way that he talked to her. She thought he was going out of his way to watch her as she passed by each day. As often as she could, she arranged a ride with children who drove a horse and buggy to school or made plans to walk with someone else. On October 22, 1915, the Henson family, including Clint, was away from the farm. Sweet stayed there alone, doing a few chores, drinking whiskey, and walking the fields with Henson's shotgun, hoping to scare up some jackrabbits. Nellie walked to school alone that day, and as Sweet was believed to have studied her routine, investigators assumed that he knew she would be walking alone when she returned. The Elson family was also away from home that day, returning just before evening chores. When they realized that Nellie was not home, they assumed she was working late. When she had not arrived by 8 p.m., they grew worried. Mr. Elson saddled a horse and rode to the school. He found the building closed and locked and guessed that Nellie was staying the night with another family. When he hadn't heard from her by morning, Elson was concerned enough to check with other families with whom she might have boarded. He soon found that no one had seen her since school had let out the previous day. He gathered some neighbors and started a search for the missing teacher. Members of the search party noted later that Archibald Sweet seemed to be watching them closely as they examined the roadsides between the Elson's house and the school. They thought it was odd that he never approached them to ask what they were doing. Around mid-morning, the naked body of Nellie Byers was found in some brush near the Cimarron River, about 100 miles from the road. The authorities were sent for, and Sheriff Burt Ladner, County Attorney H.W. Stubbs, and a doctor arrived a short time after her body was found. A few hours later, the Hensons arrived home. Clint Henson joined Sweet in watching the group of people who had gathered around the body. While the doctor examined Nellie, Sheriff Ladner and County Attorney Stubbs noted the marks of a struggle on the road and then drag marks to near where Nellie was found, and then more signs of a struggle indicating where a sexual assault had taken place. Two sets of tracks were found, including Nellie's and those of a man that were later determined to match the size and shape of the shoes worn by Archibald Sweet. Ladner and Stubbs confronted Sweet. They told him he was a suspect and he consented to a search. He was stripped in a nearby outbuilding and then taken into custody, charged with the murder of Nellie Byers. 
County attorney Stubbs was convinced that Sweet had raped, beaten, and strangled Nellie Byers and had a lot of circumstantial evidence to support his belief. Sweet had been watching Nellie for weeks and she was afraid of him. One of his previous convictions was for the sexual assault of a young girl. Stubbs believed that Sweet had watched Nellie walk into school that morning and spent the day drinking whiskey and making plans to attack her on her way home. Sweet denied any part in the murder, but during questioning, he admitted that he had been near the scene of the attack that day. However, he said that he saw and heard nothing. Several people later testified that Sweet told them that he saw Nellie walking that afternoon, but that he turned away rather than meet her on the road. If he looked over his shoulder, he said he might have seen the killer. Sweet was carrying a shotgun that day, and Nellie had been struck with a blunt instrument that could have been the barrel of the gun or the blackjack that was found hanging from a nail in Sweet's bedroom. There were no marks found on Sweet, and the clothes that he was wearing on the day of his arrest were clean and fresh. Sweat-stained clothing and underwear were found in his bedroom, though, soaked with perspiration from what Stubbs believed was his struggle with Nellie. In addition to her head wounds, Nellie had also been strangled. Her sweater, which had been wrapped around her neck and used to drag her, was found next to her body. The rest of her clothing was found the next day, folded and hidden in a location between where her body was found and the Henson house. Stubbs had a case, but it was still mostly circumstantial. There were no witnesses, limited physical evidence, and even though Sweet was uneducated, he knew the criminal system well enough that he was unlikely to confess. Stubbs was sure that Sweet's family would spare no expense in hiring good defense attorneys, so he needed to build the best case against him that he could. He decided to hire a detective to help put the prosecution's case together. He contacted the Burns Detective Agency and they sent him, unfortunately, James Wilkerson. According to sworn statements given by Stubbs and Sheriff Ladner after the trial, what took place after Wilkerson arrived was quite different than what the county attorney expected. Stubbs met Wilkerson at the train station and spent time going over the case with him. They made a brief visit to the crime scene and then Wilkerson asked to be taken to the jail so that he could interview Sweet. During the ride, Wilkerson asked Stubbs if there was a reward being offered. When Stubbs replied that there was not, Wilkerson suggested that he try and arrange for one, promising Stubbs half of what he managed to drum up. Stubbs told Wilkerson that he didn't think a reward would be offered, and if it were, it wouldn't make sense because Sweet had already been arrested and charged. Wilkerson spent three hours alone with Sweet in his jail cell, and when he was ready to leave, he shocked Stubbs by telling him that Sweet was not guilty, but that he had provided information to identify the person who was. Wilkerson suggested that Stubbs contact the governor, tell him the wrong man had been jailed, and that a reward was needed to expand the investigation. According to Stubbs, Wilkerson again offered to split the reward with him. Stubbs was not the only one surprised by Wilkerson's actions that day. In 1918, long after his trial was over, Sweet signed an affidavit stating that Wilkerson told him that several prominent citizens of the area didn't have alibis for the day Nellie was killed. The detective suggested that Sweet should name one of them as being in the area on the afternoon of the murder. Sweet said that he refused, but he did agree to participate in a plan to elicit a confession from Clint Henson. State's attorney Stubbs was upset and would soon become angry. He didn't know the details of Wilkerson's conversation with Sweet, but he did know that the detective had been hired to help convict Sweet and he was not cooperating. After being in town for a few hours, he was insisting that Sweet was not the killer. In Stubbs' opinion, Wilkerson was more interested in the reward money than in justice for the murdered girl. 
Wilkerson pushed ahead with a plan that he promised would get a confession from Clint Henson. First, he worked on Stubbs, convincing him to send a telegram to the governor saying that the wrong man had been arrested and it was imperative that a reward be put together as an incentive to find the real killer. Against his better judgment, Stubbs agreed. He'd later regret going along with this, but for now, it was too late. Wilkerson's plan was to arrest Clint and soften him up over a few days. According to the jailer, Wilkerson directed the other prisoners to work Henson over with a piece of rubber hose, which the detective provided. The prisoners were promised privileges for administering the beatings. In the meantime, Wilkerson met with Sweet Daly, coaching him so that he could elicit a confession out of Henson. Wilkerson scripted out the meeting and, if Sweet's statement is believed, told Sweet to punch his former friend Henson in the face if necessary. The detective assured Sweet that the conversation would be monitored and help would be nearby if Henson started to fight back. On the evening before the confrontation was to take place, Wilkerson had his hotel deliver a porterhouse steak dinner to Sweet's cell. Wilkerson arranged everything at the jail. A dictating machine was hidden outside the cell and a court reporter was on hand to quickly transcribed the conversation between the two men. The reporter, in a sworn statement of his own, described the experience as, quote, strange. He said that Wilkerson told him in advance what he would hear, and indeed, the words, emphasis, and manner of speaking that Wilkerson described were exactly what he heard from Sweet. There was no doubt in the court reporter's mind that Sweet was repeating exactly what Wilkerson told him to say. With everything in place, Henson was taken to Sweet's cell. Sweet first played on Henson's ego, then turned to direct accusations, shouting, and threats. He bullied him, pleaded with him, and then threatened him. Henson refused to confess. Sweet, having repeated what Wilkerson told him to say, was unsure about what to do next. So he just sat and waited for Henson to be taken away. Angry, irritated, and embarrassed, Stubbs fired Wilkerson on the spot. But the detective refused to leave town right away. He stayed for another day and, according to Stubb's statement, met with newspaper reporters and told them that Sweet was innocent and that an injustice was being done. Wilkerson's pride had been wounded when he was fired and he wanted to do everything he could to sabotage Stubbs's case. In spite of Wilkerson's plan, Stubbs won the case against Sweet. He received angry messages from William Burns himself when he refused to pay the bill for the agency's investigative services. Wilkerson's supervisors defended his conduct and threatened to sue if the bill was not paid. They had no idea that their legal problems with Wilkerson were just beginning. Stubbs was resentful about what he saw as unethical behavior by the detective and was more than happy to later share that information with Frank Jones and with I. Iowa Attorney General Horace Havner. But that was not the season's only murder to get attention. Another case also made headlines that year. Once again, it had nothing to do with Villisca, but it took place in Taylor County, which was only a few miles away. It brought Attorney General George Cozen to the area. It was an unusual crime dating back 47 years, and it attracted the attention of a newspaper reporter named Jack Boyle, who would strongly influence events in Villisca in the months to come. The Taylor County crime occurred in 1868. A cattle buyer from St. Joseph, Missouri named Nathaniel Smith came to Iowa to buy livestock. He was allegedly carrying with him between $60,000 and $90,000. 
He made the first part of his trip by train and then upon a reaching Iowa by horse and wagon. He was traveling with his son, who was 12 or 13 at the time. A group of Taylor County outlaws heard about the large amount of cash that Smith was carrying and decided to rob him. They killed him and his son, burying the boy's body in a grove of trees and dropping Smith's body down an abandoned well. They decided to wait before dividing up the money, burying it near the shallow grave of the boy. The story became part of the local folklore and included the intriguing detail of a map to the buried treasure that was lost when the home of one of the killers burned down. The gang was never able to find the money again. Over the years, scores of people had searched for it and failed. Most locals began to doubt that the treasure existed at all, but some held out hope. One of the believers was a man named Samuel Anderson, who bought the land where he believed it was buried. After looking for 15 years and finding nothing, he became convinced that someone from the original gang had trespassed on his land and dug the money up. He let it be known that he wanted his share. And when he didn't get it, he went to a lawyer. The attorney... W.W. Bowman from Charlton claimed that four local men, then in their late 70s, had killed Smith and his son almost five decades before and later recovered $43,000 of the loot. He claimed that he had evidence, including the bones of the two victims. He took the case to the county attorney, who in turn passed it on to the state's attorney general. Cozen, who planned to run for governor in 1916, may have been influenced by an opportunity to get some free publicity when he ordered the four old men to be arrested. He took the case before a grand jury and presented what little evidence there was, but the panel decided there was not enough evidence for an indictment. The four old men went home to their farms and Cozen went back to Des Moines. The whole thing was over in just a few days, but it was a big story, attracting reporters from a number of major newspapers. One of them was Jack Boyle, who then worked for the Kansas City Post. Wilkerson later described Boyle as, quote, an old-time murder story writer of the premier class, a mighty good detective, too. Such high praise coming from the disreputable detective makes one shudder, considering what Boyle must have done to get some of his stories. Boyle became famous as the creator of Boston Blackie, a fictional reformed thief-turned-detective. Boyle wrote about Boston Blackie's exploits for a number of publications, including American Magazine, Cosmopolitan, and Red Book. Boston Blackie was later featured in radio shows and serial films, and the character endured long after Boyle's death in 1928. During his reporting days, Boyle's writing style can best be described as, well, sensational. In other words, he never let the facts get in the way of a really good story. Boyle traveled to Taylor County to look into the buried treasure story. While there, he learned about the Velisca murders. Now, it's surprising that a reporter for a Midwestern paper would have missed the Velisca case, but according to Wilkerson, Boyle was working on the West Coast in 1912 and simply didn't see the story. But now, three years after the murders took place, Boyle was determined to follow up on it. He asked a Taylor County resident to suggest someone whom he might contact in Villisca to get information about the murders and was given the name of Frank Jones. Boyle then called Jones. The reporter would later say that Jones was so angry with him on the telephone that he decided he wanted to investigate further. Boyle took a train to Villisca. He asked questions around town and learned that there were those who suspected that Jones might have something to do with the murders. He also found out that a detective from the Burns Agency was working the case. After returning to Kansas City, Boyle contacted the Burns office, and according to Wilkerson, he was first told that no Burns agent was investigating the case. Boyle reportedly told them, well, there should be. 
He said that he was going to do about the story of the crime, apparently implying that he planned to slant it so that the suspicion fell toward the state senator. When this information was passed on to Wilkerson, he immediately got in touch with Boyle and allegedly worked out a deal with him. If Boyle wrote the story now, he told him it would ruin the case. If he would agree to hold off, Wilkerson would let him in on the case and would give him the, quote, inside dope on the investigation. Boyle got more than just information. He became an active participant in the investigation. Shortly after making the deal with Wilkerson, he went with the detective to find Burt McCall, the former pool hall owner and friend of Albert Jones. McCall was then living on a farm near Missouri Valley, Iowa. Wilkerson said that they, quote, sweated McCall for two days, but didn't get anything out of him. They tried to entice Albert Jones to the hotel where they were grilling McCall, but he refused to come. He did answer a few questions, though, but nothing that he told them led to anything. Soon after, Agent 33 and Boston Blackie Boyle decided to go to Velisca's Old Settlers Day to continue their investigation. The celebration was Velisca's biggest event of the year. It drew more attendees than the summer livestock shows or the town's 4th of July celebration. Old Settlers Day started out as a reunion of early residents of the area and soon became much more, doubling, even tripling the population of the town for one summer weekend. In 1915, the day included various musical performances, a horseshoe pitching contest, baseball game, boomerang throwing contest, a contortionist, a sack race, a tug of war, and massive quantities of food. The featured speaker at the city park that day was Attorney General George Cozen, whose topic was the condition of the U.S. from an attorney's perspective. He was introduced that day by Senator Frank Jones. In Wilkerson's words, Jones and Cosin were obviously, quote, pissing through the same quill. And the two of them together presented an opportunity for him and his new partner, Boyle, to do, well, something. Just what they planned to do was subject to change. The original plan had Wilkerson staying out of sight at the Fisher Hotel while Boyle brought Jones there under the pretense of conducting a newspaper interview with him. Wilkerson would hide his dictaphone in the room and record everything as the two men tried to get him to admit to his part in the murder. Boyle approached the stage where the attorney general was waiting to speak and Cozen remembered him from the Taylor County proceedings a few weeks earlier and he readily agreed to be interviewed. After Jones introduced Cosin to the crowd, Boyle asked the senator to step aside with him. In Wilkerson's version of the encounter, Boyle is said to have drawn Jones away from the crowd and flatly announced that he was investigating the murders and he was convinced that Jones was involved. As Cosin's speech continued, Boyle and Jones walked over to Jones's store. Boyle asked Jones several times to come to his hotel room, but Jones refused. In true yellow journalist fashion, Boyle told him he was giving him a chance to tell his side of the story. Otherwise, he was going to run a story about the murder based on the information that he currently had. Jones invited him into his store to talk about it, but Boyle refused to go inside, and Jones ended the conversation. He turned his back on the reporter and went back to the park where Cozen was still speaking. Jones was near the podium when Cozen finished his speech, and he apparently warned Cozen about the interview scheme because instead of going to the hotel with the reporter, Cozen went home with Jones. When Cozen didn't show up for the interview, Boyle called the telephone operator and asked her if she knew where the attorney general was. She did, and she rang the Jones house. Boyle got Cozen on the telephone and asked him to come to the hotel for the interview. Cozen reluctantly agreed, but when he arrived at the hotel, Boyle was as blunt with him as he had been with Jones. According to Wilkerson, Boyle accused the attorney general of making a deal with Jones, agreeing to protect him from a murder investigation if Jones promised not to run against him in the governor's race. 
Wilkerson had the dictating machine running during this conversation, but he conveniently failed to record Cozen's reply, or so he claimed. The attorney general stormed out of the hotel. After Cozen left, Boyle again telephoned the Jones home. Frank and Albert drove to the hotel but refused to go inside. Harsh words were exchanged outside on the street with Boyle again threatening to print a story accusing Jones of murder. Jones told the reporter that he would never get away with it. Soon after the Old Settlers Days incident, a separate occurrence took place that Jones would call blackmail and Wilkerson would claim had been merely an investigative technique. There are no questions about the basic facts. Wilkerson arranged for an itinerant newspaper writer named Bell, using the name Daly, to go to Jones and offer to sell him Wilkerson's investigative reports. It's easy to understand why Jones would consider this blackmail. Only a few days before, Boyle accused him of murder, implied there was considerable evidence against him, and threatened to print a story about it. Now, Bell, by both Wilkerson and Jones's accounts, was demanding $25,000 in exchange for the reports. Jones said that Bell not only offered him the reports, but told him that if he paid up, all investigation activities against him would stop at once. Jones had at least two conversations with Bell. During the second, they met in Jones's home where the senator had friends concealed in the next room to listen in on the shady conversation. In 1915, $25,000 was a fortune, nearly the equivalent of $620,000 today. If the plan was extortion and Wilkerson had succeeded, he could have cut Boyle in on the money and still been a very wealthy man. Since it failed, Wilkerson was quick to claim that it had just been an investigative tactic. He said he had no intention of collecting the money, he only wanted to see what Jones's reaction to the proposition was. He also claimed that Sheriff Jackson, who never commented on it, was aware of the scheme. If Jones had agreed to buy the reports, it would have been seen as an indication that he had something to hide. Wilkerson's version of the second meeting with Bell also differed from Jones's. He said that Bell had dropped the price for the papers during the first meeting from $25,000 to $5,000. Jones said he might be interested and set a second meeting in a few days. Bell, carrying an envelope stuffed with blank papers, went to Jones's home, but when he got there, Jones was no longer interested. Instead, he produced a letter from Attorney General Cozen allegedly assuring that the state would discontinue pursuit of the Velisca murder case. No one can say for sure what really happened with this blackmail slash investigative incident. If Jones really had friends hidden in the next room to listen to his second conversation with Bell, none of them ever filed affidavits about what they heard. There's also no proof that Wilkerson arranged the scheme with Sheriff Jackson's approval, so he could have easily have taken the money and no one would have been the wiser. Jones's supporters saw the whole episode as extortion, while Wilkerson's supporters saw it as a valid strategy for the investigation. There was one other incident that occurred in 1915 that had an effect on the Velisca case, although no one knew it at the time. It happened in late December on a particularly cold night during a season that had become known for low temperatures that sometimes dipped into the 20 below zero range. Around 2 a.m., a fire broke out at the Jones National Bank building. It was discovered by the night marshal who sounded the alarm by firing his revolver into the air as he ran down the street to ring the town's fire bell. The bank, a two-story stone building that had been under construction at the time of the murders, also housed several office spaces. The fire was put out without any structural damage, but smoke, heat, and water damage occurred in a print shop and in the offices of two doctors and a dentist. The fire destroyed the contents of a photography studio owned by John Warren Knoll. Luckily for Knoll, he had a $1,500 insurance policy on his studio equipment. 
Noel was a relative newcomer to Villisca. He was 25 with a wife and two small children. He had been working late in his studio that night, as he often did, and had apparently left only a short time before the fire was discovered. The cause of the fire was designated as unknown, and the insurance company paid off on the damage. But as people in town learned more about Noel, his financial situation, his tendency to live beyond his means, his arrest record, and his role as a star witness in the Wilkerson investigation, they began to wonder about exactly what happened on the night of that fire. When we return for our next episode, we'll see the return of William Mansfield, the man that James Wilkerson claimed had been the Villisca killer, slaying the Moore family at the direction of Frank Jones. We'll be jumping into some murky waters in the days ahead, so be sure your dictaphone is running so you won't miss a single word of any secret conversations. Thanks for tuning in to the American Hauntings Podcast, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. You've caught up with us in Season 3, which we call Murdered in Their Beds, the true story of the Midwest axe murders of the 1900s. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. Hey, how are you? I, I know, I can tell you right now, I am totally exhausted from the Haunted America conference last week. Okay, I'm making that up. <laughs> gonna uh, say just so you know, uh, thanks to everyone who came to the conference, but it actually hasn't happened when we're recording this. So uh, we'll have to talk to you more about the conference um, next episode. If we, I'm, yep. So as we record this, I'm hoping that, you know, like the there wasn't a tornado, the hotel didn't burn oh, down right. or something like that while we were there. So um, we'll do, we'll just hope for the best and tell you that point. the conference is over uh, by the time you hear this. So yeah, it was great meeting you all. I can't, I can't <laughs> yeah, believe exactly, that thing right? that happened. Right. Ridiculous. Yeah. We're actually super close to where it's going to be. Yes, we are. Um, yes, I we mean, are. as in, in the same building. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so Haunted America conference happened. It was great. We crushed it. Everybody loved it. What else is coming up? Well, we still have the, uh, the Black Dahlia uh, coming up in a couple of weeks, the evening with the Black Dahlia. Uh, which is going to be a lot of fun. We were talking in our last episode about uh, unsolved crimes and you know what what makes my top list of crimes I want to know what really happened, and that that's number one on my list. Yeah, so that was an interesting that's, little that's tidbit. That's one I'm going to be. Uh, I'm always excited to talk about it. Uh, I was excited to write the book about it, and so it's just one of those stories that. I don't know, man. It's just it's been with me forever. Yeah, I mean, why do why do you think that was I don't know. stuck with you? I don't know. Uh, I really don't. I um, I've always been fascinated with that story. Uh, I mean, I've got a tattoo of the Black Dahlia on my back. Um, I didn't know I mean, that. Yeah, I I really love that story. And I was in uh, Gettysburg a few years ago uh, visiting with. Uh, well, we'd gone out there for an American Hauntings event, but I was at uh, Mark Nesbitt and Carol Nesbitt's house, and we were visiting. And Catherine Ramsland happened to be there, and she has written 
Um, she's not really, I mean, she's done a couple of books that are ghost related, but mostly she's a crime writer and a really well-respected one. And she said, what is it with you men and the Black Dahlia? Is it because she's, she's hot? I don't, maybe, <laughs> I don't know. She, she's always like, you know, why is it that you men always want to, you know, see her as like this lost soul? You know, I yeah. said, I don't know. I don't know what, the, what it is it's about a fair that, question. But it is, it is a fair question because she said that it's always men who do that. It's, it's usually not women. And I don't, I don't know why, really. I just always have thought that it's such a fascinating story about such a broken person. Sure. You know, that desperately wanted fame that she got it, but too late to enjoy it. Sure. Anyway, um, that's July 13th. Come out. You can hear me um, wax poetic about Beth Short yeah. uh, for the evening. So we've also got um, an evening with the Axeman on August 10th. And we have just now... When you're hearing this, we will have posted our entire lineup of fall events. Um, that is ghost hunts um, everywhere from the Mineral Springs in Alton to Fox Hollow Farm to places in, you know, all over the Midwest where we do ghost hunts in the fall. We also have all of our um, evening with events in Alton uh, with the Limp family, St. Louis Exorcism, Lizzie Borden and some other ones, plus all of our Ghosts of the River Road tour um, events dates will be booked or will be up on the website so you can book those too so all by the time you hear this everything will have been posted up on the either altonhauntings.com website or the americanhauntings.net website so you can see everything we've got coming up awesome and i mentioned it last episode that uh, i haven't done anything ghost related in a long time so i will be trying to well, at the end of july we have another mineral springs but right it's, i mean it's been sold out for a while but right so probably be there i'm gonna try to wedge myself into as many yeah. of these events as yeah. i can so if if you want to come out and hang out um you know you know where to where to find us um so we have a couple listener reviews that i wanted to mention real quick uh and again the reviews the ratings on itunes help people find us it's a good signal to you know apple and podcasts and stuff that we're doing a good job and they should show our show to more people and we have a fun time <laughs> Yeah, reading well, them. That's true. So I just wanted to to read a couple of them. So this first one says, "I've been a fan of, of Troy Taylor's website and books for at least eighteen years now. That's older than me. No, it's not. It's <laughs> I'm so happy to be able to listen to these creepy stories. I hope you continue this podcast. Thank you. And that's from Sash Five, I think. Okay. So thank you for that. Big fan. Eighteen years. Um, next one is I started listening to this podcast at the beginning of season two, and I've been an avid listener ever since. I learned so much fascinating stuff from this podcast. Cody and Troy, if you read this, I love what you do and keep up the good work. That's from Corey uh, uh, Abu Abukin. <laughs> I don't know. Sorry, Corey. I'm gonna mess your stuff up, but um, yeah, send me an email. Um, thank you so much for the reviews and. It's um I don't know it's just nice it is. when people it say is. nice things yeah. about it's, the stupid stuff fun, we do right? you know I mean, it's we're just having fun with it so it's nice to hear from people who are enjoying it yeah so, anyway. yeah so okay hey everyone we have to take a quick break to listen to a word from our sponsors so people are always coming up to me and saying Cody how do I listen to your podcast I got this phone just to take pictures of ghosts and I don't I don't know what else to do with it. So I tell them you can check us out on Stitcher Premium. And right now you can get a free month trial by going to stitcherpremium.com and using the promo code 
hauntings. And if you're looking for some new true crime, then you can check out the True Crime Garage, off the record, the latest project from True Crime Garage host Nick and the Captain. You join them each week as they revisit some of the most haunting cases they've covered to date. This is a compilation of hidden treasures, a chance to dive deeper, discuss new theories, and get updates on your favorite episodes of True Crime Garage. Or if you're looking for something a little different, comedian Chris Gethard's Beautiful Stories from Anonymous People opens the phone line to one anonymous caller, and Chris can't hang up first no matter what. From shocking confessions and family secrets to philosophical discussions and shameless self-promotion, anything can and will happen. Stitcher Premium also has new ad-free episodes of cult favorite My Favorite Murder and hit shows from the podcast network like Cults and Conspiracy Theories and my personal favorite podcast, How Did This Get Made? Plus thousands of hours of original content, early access to new releases, exclusive bonus episodes and archives, and hundreds of stand-up comedy albums for when you need a laugh. And of course, like I said, our show is also available every week with Stitcher Premium. To get a free trial of Stitcher Premium, go to stitcherpremium.com and use promo code HAUNTINGS. That's stitcherpremium.com, promo code HAUNTINGS. It's nice to hear from people who are enjoying it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, okay, moving on. Let's yes. dive into this story. Okay. So, set the scenery it's here. It's a mess. The story's a mess. It is a mess. So. And uh, after this story, I have I have a new hatred for a man. <laughs> yeah. So, it's 19, right? 1915. Wilkerson's still building his case against Frank Jones. He's got- yeah, This is three years right. after the murders. And yeah. so, he starts pulling in all these pieces that we've kind of been talking about, pulling them together. He's got um, a quote-unquote emotive- got Vena Tompkins story. He's got uh, Mansfield as the killer. He's got the uh, the Guthrie gang. Yeah. Um, and so he starts trying to pull all these things together. It doesn't have a full picture, but he's... The, the, the nefarious outlaw, the. Yes. The uh, Whipple. Wait, <laughs> the. It has them shaking in their boots, right? So he had this basic plot for a document that he would later call his dope sheet. I need to ask you about this. Yeah, that's just that was just something that, I mean, you know, when it, it was a phrase that people used to use and they you know, early 1900s, um, when you get the straight dope on something. That was just what you called it. It was this, you know, um, it. It, it means that, you know, you got the inside story, the right. inside scoop, you know. And so he called it his dope sheet, and he would print up all of his um, theories and conspiracies and pass them around to get people all stirred up. Got it. And it was just a phrase. It was just, it's one of those detective Noir kind of uh, phrases, gumshoe or something, yeah, or stuff or like whatever. that. Yeah, stuff like okay. that. Okay, I, I, he's going to come up later. I'm going to make another joke yeah. about it, but I was just <laughs> like, uh, oh, some dope sheets, yeah. dude. Like I yeah. use that same that uh -huh. same sentence nowadays. Okay, but so he continued to find local financial support to continue the investigation, mostly from family and friends of the victims. And that makes me sad. Yeah, because he well, they just wanted a solution, of course. And and, and as far as they could tell. He was their best bet because no one else was working on it. Sure. Every other detective had already given up on this because they had to move on to other things. Right. I mean, it was obvious this wasn't going to be solved anytime soon because, well, I mean, the killer was long gone. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was a faceless serial killer, that, but they didn't know that. They, they were, you know, believing Wilkerson in that it was someone local that was involved in this. And that seemed to be the best way that they were ever going to get an answer is, uh, you know, and he had him convinced, uh, oh, yeah, it's Frank Jones was behind the whole thing. And 
we've talked about this before, and I think I've mentioned it a few times, but it was a lot easier for people who lived around Villisca to believe that this had a chance of being solved. Mm -hmm. And by having it be a local killer, then you had a chance for it to be solved if they just confess. Absolutely. You know, or if, you know, the evidence could all be brought out, you know. For sure. Um, so he had a scam going. I mean, he had a, he had a con going. And as long as it was making money, he stuck around. Yep. You know, I, I really... Especially after this story, I mean, we, we, you know, I just, I just read this story and all this stuff about Nellie Byers. I mean, it was obvious this guy did not believe the things he was saying. Hell no. Um, you know, but he knew that if he could keep an audience interested in paying up cash and putting it into a reward fund or whatever, whoever he could pin this on, you know, would be great. It would be, you know, it would be a bundle of money in his yep. pocket, but he was also making his daily expenses, from these people, you know, who were paying to make sure that the crime was actually investigated, you know, because, ooh, the government's keeping him from doing it because they're all paid off by Frank Jones. Right, right. You know, so he had a, you know, people are, are you know, we're, you say these people, oh, they, gee, they're so gullible. Well, what's changed? I mean, I, I can't believe the things that people believe today. It's like if you say the same lie often enough – over and over and over again, even though you never believe it, they don't care if they're believed. They just want you to repeat it. For sure. Because if you repeat it, their lie often enough, more people are going to believe the lie. Right. And so that's, unfortunately, the, the current state of our government. Mm. Uh, but that's the way things were done then, just like they are now. Sure. I mean, nothing's changed. You well, know, I mean... The, those times really weren't that different from what we're dealing with now. I mean, it seems like it should be 115 years ago. You'd think. But here was a guy who had pulled the wool over everybody's eyes and just kept spouting the same bullshit over and over and over again. And knowing that it's a lie, that he didn't care. Yeah. And people just kept ponying up their cash. Yeah. Well, Troy, I want to stop you right there. Um, I think they're not lies. They're alternative facts. Oh, yeah, right. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. So I just want to make that And if someone says that the, the real truth, then it must be fake. It must be fake news. Of course. Right. right. Fake, Same thing. Fake news. Yeah. That could catch on. Yeah. You if never know. If there's something I don't like. Maybe in 100 years or so. I'll just call it fake news. Yeah. Anyway, if you don't see these parallels, okay, it's crazy. Um, so anyway, Wilkerson later claimed that the state stopped paying him when it became evident that he was doing yeah, a case against Senator Jones, yeah. of course. And he just, I mean, I, we know. But see, there it, there it is again. He just puts another spin on of it course. and says, oh, well, you know, they don't want me investigating their buddy. That had nothing to do with right, it. Right. It had everything to do with the fact that he was had no credible evidence sure. of anything. Right. And so they're like, yeah, we're not going to keep paying for this. And this is the this is the in my opinion, one of the most this is one of the most dangerous types of people that yeah. have a position of power and then spin things yeah. in whatever way they can and don't care about the consequences. Right. They're just trying to make right. you know, it's a means to it's an end. It's all about themselves. Exactly. Themselves. And it's just very yeah. narcissistic and yeah. and dangerous. Uh, so he makes a trip to Kansas that summer to investigate the murder of a young woman named Nellie Byers. You mentioned that he also got a divorce that same summer and it would come up yeah, later. Yeah, that'll come up later. I just I I just mentioned that in passing and probably no one will remember that when we get to that part of the story, but um, it's something to watch out for. Sure. You know? And if you listen to the next episode and you don't remember that divorce, we told you. Yeah. Right, right, now. right. right. Okay. <laughs> uh, so let's go to Grant County, Kansas. So Nellie Byers, she's a teacher. 
Apparently, it was you said it was common for uh, teachers and other people to room with like farm well, families. Well, she was a, yeah, or? she was in a very rural area. It was a literally like a one room schoolhouse, and she was a young teacher had just gotten her certificate and um, didn't make much money. So that hasn't changed either right, uh, in the time that has gone by. And so she taught at this school. She would. Um, and that, w- that was common with farm families. They would uh, put up the teacher, let them room with them, the provider with meals and a place to sleep. And, you know, she stayed with different families and stuff. And she happened to be staying with this one particular family. And her walk to school took her past um, the Henson farm where this scumbag that Clint Henson, who I'm sure was a real prize himself, um, had met in jail, this guy named Archibald Sweet. And um, he was a creep. And a lazy creep who would hang around and, you know, make lewd comments to her when she went by and gawk at her and that kind of thing. And it made her really uncomfortable. And there was no Me Too movement back then. She right. couldn't tell anybody about this other than she'd mentioned to people, man, this guy really creeps me out. You know, and when she could get a different ride to school, she'd take it. Sure. So. Yeah. No, I, I wish I couldn't say this, but I know a ton of people like this. Uh, and that brings me to another point. If you feel uncomfortable with someone, you feel a, a weird vibe, say something, do something. Yeah, right. There's probably a reason you have a weird uh-huh. vibe from somebody. Yeah. And I'm not saying you have to like tell them, hey, you're a creep, but like feel free to remove yourself from the situation because if you're getting a bad vibe from someone, yeah. there's probably a reason. Yeah, but it was a different time. It was a different time. Yeah. No, I know. Of course. I just mean now. And she couldn't even vote. Right. I mean, she was just a woman. You know, right. That's, Nobody cared uh, until she was dead. So, yeah, this episode's going to make everybody just real happy. Yeah, um, I know, right? So, uh, it's October 22nd, 1915. Uh, Sweet's alone at the farm, and he's drinking and hunting jackrabbits with a shotgun. I'm yeah. not going to lie, this sounds kind of fun. <laughs> as much as I think he's a piece of shit and a terrible person, I could kind of go for this. Um, after that, no one can find Nellie. Uh, eventually, you know, they, they go around ask about different families that she might have stayed with, go by the school. And it's the next morning, and the the family she was staying with decides to form a search party. And the search party later noticed that Archibald Sweet uh, seemed to be watching them closely as they examined the roadsides between their house and the school. And they thought it was odd that he never approached. Never ask anybody, asked anybody, hey, what, what you doing? doing? You got to yeah. play the part. Yeah, right. Like, I mean, you yeah, got to draw attention like a, away from yourself. Yeah, you might as well just be carrying a big sign that I know what you're doing. Exactly. Um, and, you know. You'll never find her. Well, you know? What was the other one? It's like, well, they're looking in the wrong place. Yeah, they're right. Like, exactly. Know, yeah. yeah. Um, so eventually they end up finding her body and it appeared that she'd been sexually assaulted and it was definitely murdered. Sweet is arrested. Uh, she was hit with a blonde object and strangled with, was she strangled with her sweater? Is that oh, no, she, she was drugged with her sweater, but she was strangled, beaten, knocked unconscious, strangled and raped. Jesus Christ. Okay, so Sweet had a previous conviction for sexual assault of a young girl, but he had no marks on him. Um, They find the rest of her clothing the next day. And so Stubbs has a case, but it's mostly circumstantial. Right. And here's where we tie in Wilkerson. It's like, I need a detective. Who should I go for? Burns Agency. Yeah, and they're like, well, he happens to be in the area. Why don't we just send over Wilkerson? Uh, Great. And I'm sure if if there's one decision he could take back. Yeah, no kidding. Of course, he didn't know it at the time. He was a, you know, Burns agent. He must be good. Of of course, he would think. And then Harry shows up and... He immediately, so he immediately tries to drum up a reward to split with Stubbs, which is scumbag move, but he's just the worst. Um, And so after he, so he goes in, interviews Sweet for about three hours. Wilkerson comes out and he's like, hey, 
he's not guilty. You, you got the wrong guy, but I know who it is. And so he again decides we need to set up a reward. Yeah, if only we could get a reward. If only we could get a reward. So it's 1918. Um, and long after his trial was over, Sweet signed an affidavit stating that Wilkerson told him during that meeting that several prominent citizens of the area didn't have alibis for the day that Nellie was killed. And he dis- he suggested that Sweet should name one of them as being in the area that afternoon of the murder. Sweet said that he refused, but he did agree to participate in a plan to elicit a confession from Clint Henson, his jailhouse buddy. So he's like, no, I'm not going to go up against these people, but I'll right. fuck over my friend. Right, right, exactly. Which, uh, it's all confusing to me, but whatever. But in Stubbs' opinion, Wilkerson was more interested in reward money than in justice yeah, for the murder right. girl. Yeah, no shit. Yeah, like, right. I think that's right. very, very evident. Wilkerson has Clint arrested and then basically gives the inmates a rubber hose and was like, hey, yeah. beat this guy up for the next couple of days. Yeah, try to get him to break him down and, and make him, you know, he'll want to get out of jail so bad he'll confess. Right, right. Yeah. Which, I mean, it's a good plan. Yeah, Like, it's terrible, but right, it's, it's right. probably effective. But meanwhile, he's meeting with Sweet daily to coach him to how to elicit a confession from his friend. <laughs> and he even tells him, hey... Punch him in the face and yeah. get him to fight <laughs> yeah, you back. Whatever you want. Um, yeah. And then he sends over a steak dinner to the prison. Yeah, I like that. Part um, too. Which, I mean, he's really just doing everything he can, rolling out the red carpet here. Um, so they decide that they're going to have have Clint and Sweet meet, and they're going to have a court reporter come in and like listen in, transcribe the conversation. So the reporter later in a sworn <laughs> statement described the experience as strange. <laughs> yeah. It's like it's almost like. He, you know, knows everything that this guy's going to say to try yeah, and get his exactly. friend to Well, yeah, he, uh, Wilkerson told him ahead of time, here's what he's going to say. Right. And then the guy's sitting out there, you know, typing this stuff up on a, a dictation machine. And it's like, what the hell? Yeah. You know, so, yeah, there's nothing subtle about this I know. At all. Yeah. Why yeah. Why is he, yeah. maybe he's yeah. just so cocky, he's just trying to like, <laughs> you know, just get out ahead of it. I don't know. But so it doesn't work. Stubbs fires Wilkerson, um, but who, he decided to stay around for another day to do some press. Yeah, right. And let everybody know that the wrong man had been yeah, just, arrested. Just to sabotage everything. He was so mad that he thought he'd just sabotage just, the case, even though at this point he was not going to get anything out of it. Right. Yeah. Well, he was just being spiteful, just being a dick right, at that exactly, point. Right, exactly. Um, but he, uh, Stubbs decides he's not going to pay the bill, which I don't blame him. Yeah, I don't like, either. Why wouldn't you? But that causes a whole... The whole thing. Um, Stubbs was resentful about what he saw as unethical behavior. I would agree <laughs> by the detective, and he would, but he was more than happy to share information with Frank Jones and right. later with right. Iowa Attorney General right. Horace Havner as to what a scumbag this guy was. Right, so, and so yeah. that'll that come, will come back later. Sure. Yes. So as you've seen, even in this episode, we've set up a lot of pieces. We tie things back together. So right. this will all right. come back around. So now I want to jump to Taylor County. Yeah, and and really, this, this story place? really has nothing to do with Villisca. I mean, it's close by. It's an old story about this bank robbery and this this missing money has absolutely nothing to do with anything other than it got a lot of press attention. Sure. And the big thing here is that it introduces another character to the mess, um, and that's you know uh, this. Newspaper writer who went on to this Jack Boyle, who went on to write, you know, the Boston Blackie detective stories and stuff. And then in his work with Wilkerson is the only reason why we even delve into that murder case at all is because that's how he ended up getting involved in Villisca. Um, You know, heard about it from somebody and had never heard, didn't hear the story before. And I, I just... I'm still baffled by when he asked the guy, well, who should I talk to? Who should I call in Villisca? They said, well, this is a guy named Frank Jones. And I thought, 
Why would you give right. him Frank Jones's name unless this guy really knew nothing about the case? Yeah. But knew Frank Jones knew something about it. Yeah, you know what I mean? An odd person. So he calls Frank and who loses his shit with this guy on the telephone. So Well, it's like, hey, yeah. he's a very which powerful person. Made him, which made this guy suspicious because this guy's a scumbag too. Yep. You know. Just another so. fucking piece of work yeah. here. So we're going to learn more about him in just a little bit. So Taylor County, it's 18, this is 1868. We're going way back. There's a cattle buyer for, from St. Joseph, Missouri named Nathaniel Smith. Came to Iowa to buy livestock. Uh, said he was carrying 60 to 90 grand on him. That's maybe. a lot of money. That's a shit ton of money yeah. now. It was a lot more back then. Yeah, a lot more. group of outlaws found him, killed him and his son, and buried the boy in a grove of trees, and then they dropped Nate down an abandoned well. This would be absolutely terrifying um, <laughs> to ha- have happened to you. They decided to wait before dividing up the money, burying it near the shallow grave of a boy. It became folklore, the buried treasure, and no one could ever find that yeah. sort of thing. A man named Samuel Anderson buys the land where the money is supposed to be buried, searched for 15 years, can't find it. Seems like that was a bad investment on his part. <laughs> but you know, he says, you know what? I'm a, one of these guys came back and yeah. grabbed this money. I'm going to go sue him. Yeah, I know it, right? I mean, what the audacity. kind of logic is this? I you mean, know, I just... He he invested in this land. He will not be made a fool of. Yeah, no of. kidding. I just, I, yeah. <sighs> I don't know, it's a different time. But so the attorney, W.W. Uh, w. Bowman from Sheridan. Yeah. Claimed that the four local men, uh, then in their late 70s, had killed Smith and his son almost five decades before and had recovered $43,000 of the loot. Attorney General Cosson? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Who pl- our, our Attorney General Cosson, that's that George that has been in the story. Right. Okay. Cosin. Sorry. I'm just yeah. really bad at names. Oh, that's all right. Who planned to run for governor in uh, 1916 may have been influenced by an opportunity to get some free publicity when he ordered that the four old men arrested, but they didn't indict because there just no. wasn't that. What do you <laughs> no, get? There was no, evidence come on. I'm, I'm curious them. too. Is like, do we know how we picked these four guys? No, I, I, it, I mean, they apparently had a, a reputation. Or I would imagine. Past and who knows? They may have been the, they have been for the bank robbers. Who knows? And we're still around, but yeah, I mean, there was no way to actually pin this on them right. after all that time. So the whole thing's over in just a few days, but it attracted press, including Jack Boyle, who you mentioned earlier from right. the Kansas City Post. So have you, like, you mentioned Boston Blackie Boyle, that's how you kind of described him earlier, and he he wrote things. He, and he invented the character in. Boston Black. Have you, did you, were you familiar with any of this yeah. stuff? Like, yeah, was it well, big enough? I'm, I'm familiar with it from the movie serials that they had in the 30s and 40s. Okay. Um, and I knew that it was a detective that had been in stories. And the, I mean, it was, he was, Boston Blackie was, a uh, um, he, he became famous for his, uh, there's even a song uh, for his pencil thin mustache. He had one of those little, little skinny mustaches in the movie series. Oh, okay. And there's a there's actually a Jimmy Buffett song called Pencil Thin Mustache, the kind that Boston Blackie wore. Really? Yeah. And okay, uh, so but it anyway, it's big. a story. Yeah, it was a series of stories that he wrote. And um, you know, he was like a thief who had decided to go straight and had to become a detective, but he was, you know, kind of on the shady side to get things done. Kind of you know, like every detective from the nineteen thirties and forties, sure. you know, sometimes crossed the line kind of thing. But Anyway, that that was later. This was a little bit later in his right. life um, because he died in 1928, but the stories by that time had taken a life of their own. They had already become movies and things like that. 
I'm, af- I'm afraid to ask this question. Was this an African American detective? No. Okay. All right. I didn't know if there was like no. a layer of racism. No, no, too. no. It's not a. Yeah. No, it wasn't a racist thing. So. Okay. All right. <laughs> that makes it a little <laughs> bit better. Um, so Wilkerson describes Boyle as an old time murder story writer of the premier class, a mighty good detective too. This is not a man you want praise No, from. you don't. You want to just stay away from him as far as possible. But this guy didn't know. Uh, well, yeah, of course. You know, he got sucked in, and I'm sure he got sucked in by the promise of all kinds of rewards and everything when they broke the story, too. Sure. So well, I mean, he... I'm going to say he probably didn't make a whole lot of money writing newspaper stories at right. the time, and th- which is the reason why he was writing stories about Boston Blackie to make some extra money. So. Right. Well, I mean, what we learn about him a little bit, it seems like he just wasn't a great guy anyway. No, I, mean, I don't it seems think like so. They're a great little yeah. duo of yeah, terrible people. Yeah, I think people. so, too. Uh, you, mentioned that he, you mentioned he never let the facts get in the way of a good, good story. story. Yeah. So that tells you a lot right there. Boyle traveled to Taylor County to look into the buried treasure story. While there, he learned about the Velisca murders. And like you mentioned in a roundabout way, calls Frank Jones. And then gets pissed off with that conversation and gets more suspicious. So he calls the Burns agency and Wilkerson's like, hey, we can work something out here. Let's make a deal. Said, if you'll agree to hold off on your story that could threaten this investigation, he's like, I'm going to let you in on the case and give you the inside dope. There's your dope again. Boom. On the investigation. So we have, I love you, put this Agent 33 and Boston Blackie (laughs) Boyle. Sounds like a terrible sitcom um, cop duo thing. So a plan is hatched. But there's some debate on how it played out. Yeah. Basically, um, they're trying to, I don't know, record conversations and trap people, get them to kind of expose. Which at the time was not illegal. Oh, okay. I didn't even think about that. I mean, the laws often take a long time to catch up with technology. Sure. And so the fact that they were, well, they weren't really recording anyone. They were bringing in a, you know, a transcriber with a dictaphone. And then oh. when they were, you know, writing up the stories, you know, trying to record them on the dictaphone. So, okay. Yeah. Wow. It's kind of stupid. I didn't know. Um, I, did, I didn't pick that up. I know you mentioned yeah. earlier the person typing stuff yeah, out, but I didn't yeah. catch that it's not recording them. It's so, I mean, that's still, if someone mishears what they're hearing, I know, but it that's, but it was a legal document. The transcription was a legal document. Interesting. So. Okay. Yeah. So, some laws have always been stupid. Yeah, yeah. It's just, you know, so they, you know, kept trying to trick. Well, they were trying to trick uh, the attorney general into admitting that he was covering up for Frank Jones. Right. And they were trying to trick Frank Jones into admitting he had something to do with the murders. Right. Okay. And so jo- J- Jones warns Cosson that he's uh, about the plan. So he doesn't go to right, the hotel. Right. Then soon after the old Settlers Day instance, which apparently is like, the biggest day in, yeah, it was in a Villisca. Big, big part, big celebration kind of party, you know, big town wide gathering with food and games. Like a and, block party eh, or car- something. Traveling or... carnival, all that kind of stuff. Okay. You know? So as soon after that, a separate occurrence took place that Jones would call, uh, Jones would call blackmail and Wilkerson would claim <laughs> it had been merely an investigative uh-huh, technique. Right. Such a piece of shit. I, I think he I got it. to this point where I'm still not going to be able to prove anything. So. Maybe I can shake Jones down for some money and then blow out of town. Right. I think that was the plan. Right. So the plan is he's trying to get twenty five k out of him, which is six hundred twenty thousand yeah. dollars, which yeah. is a shit ton a lot of, money of money back then to to stop the investigation essentially. Right. And right. Um, Jones not not having that. And there's some discrepancy as far as like did it drop down from twenty five to five? And yeah. was he considering it? And then. He was basically saying, well, no, I just wanted to see if you'd take the bait because if he did, that many had something to hide. Uh-huh. I wouldn't have actually yeah. taken the right. money. 
Right, but which, nobody knew about it. And he yes. claimed the sheriff knew about it, but he didn't. As, so, yeah, no yeah. record of that. Um, so then something strange happens. Uh, in December of 1915, a fire breaks out at Jones National Bank building. The I love this. The night marshal sounded the alarm by firing his revolver into <laughs> right. the air as he ran down the street to ring the town's fire bell. <laughs> First off, that sounds really fun. Yeah. Uh, second thing, uh, I think it's self-explanatory. What's a fire bell? Uh, just the fire alarm to wake up the volunteer firemen uh, so that okay. people knew there was a fire in town. Got it. So. Okay. Um, and this ended up destroying uh, some, some damaging some businesses, but it destroyed a photography studio owned by John Warren uh, Knoll, who just so happened to be the star witness in Wilkerson. Yeah, he'll show up again. He'll come back. We'll come back to that, too. Right. See, that's another one of those things that we put on there that we're going to come back to later. Sure. So. And that's where we'll, where we'll pick back up. Things off. Yep. Next time we'll be back with um, William Mansfield's back in the story. Yes. And um, the way it turns out is I, I don't want to I don't want to give it all away because it's it actually gets kind of fun because um, even though to to this day there are still people who think William Mansfield committed these murders, um, he sort of gets his revenge. Okay. So we'll I'll leave it at that. We'll get back to it later. Nice. Well, let's get to Mansfield's Revenge. Um, <laughs> it's now time for our Ghostwriter segment. If you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, email us at AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail.com. Our first message comes to us from Logan. It's actually a follow-up message, um, so it's a little lengthy, but uh, I think you'll get it. it says, Hello, Troy and Cody. I put up a review on iTunes about laser grid on a gravestone. Well, to follow up what I was talking about. Oh, yeah, because I didn't remember what I said, was talking about. Sorry, man. Listen to <laughs> season two, episode 18, which is episode five of season two. I know there's a lot of numbers. Um, it's titled Graveyards in St. Louis. And he said around the 40 minute mark, Troy mentions uh, about a laser carved motorcycle on a gravestone. I'm wondering if it's at Belfontaine or Calvary. No, I think I was just talking about how different tombstones were now than they used to be. Oh, okay. I think that's maybe what it is. Yeah, I didn't listen to this part to like confirm this beforehand. Um, But I'm going to check it out and see what I can figure out for you. And um, he also says, let's see, um, I enjoy the podcast so much. I'm still a little behind. I'm catching up. Keep up the great work. And I know Troy says nobody listens at the end when Cody's doing the segment, <laughs> but I always listen to the whole podcast. Cody does a great job. Stop interrupting Cody, Troy. <laughs> Three exclamation points. Logan, thank you so much for your oh message. God. Would uh, you pay this guy? Uh, you oh, know, read your letter. Is it, is it me? It might be me. Same. I don't know. This next one. <laughs> yeah, <isn't>, your, your <laughs> alternate identity, Logan. This, this next one's actually another follow-up from Steven. It says, hi, Steven here again. Uh, still enjoying your podcast, although as the subject line suggests in his email, he said the binge is over, but he's like, I'm all caught up. Oh, okay. I want to say hello back to the renowned Mr. Taylor as I heard his aggravated aggravated salutation he sent my way as he interrupted your exit piece yet again. This is like when I'm what? reading this thing. I'm reading the thing at the end and yeah. you are yelling like, oh, so, well, Stephen listens to the oh, end. Oh, like, yeah, he, yeah. He made some <laughs> joke. Yeah. Um, he said, P.S., I don't shirk my duties. I at- said he was the only person. Yes, exactly. Yeah. He yeah. said, P.S., I don't shirk my duties at work to listen to your podcast unfortunately able to both listen to your podcast eagerly and work diligently thanks for the show steven i was totally poking fun at like just saying hey just you know don't worry about your work just listen to the podcast for hours i listen to podcasts at work all the time i still get stuff done so i was just using you to poke fun i really appreciate you listening wherever that didn't seem like an upset email sure i just yeah i just want to make sure i'm sure you do a great job and thank you so much for listening and for sending in your email 
Okay, well, let's wrap it up. And uh, I'll say thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, As I always ask you to do, share this podcast with your friends. And even more importantly, be sure to get onto iTunes and leave us a review. Uh, Even if you don't always listen on iTunes, uh, it still helps us a lot to get the podcast out there. Um, I think that's probably one of the best places for reviews. Um, Or you can send us an email and we'll, uh, we'll read it on the show. So if we like it. Or something. So, anyway, uh, for me, that's it. We're signing off, and uh, that is the end of the show. Uh, you can find your hosts on Twitter, oh Instagram, and Facebook. Gosh. And if you have comments, suggestions, reviews, or jokes, be sure to pass them along. Should I just let you just until do next this? time? Goodbye. So long, and see you later. All right. Thank you, Troy, for that great uh, outro. So, this episode God. of American Hunters Podcast was written by Troy Taylor and is produced and edited by me, this. Cody Beck. In each episode, we try to combine history, folklore, legend, imagination, Troy, and the truth to reveal more about America's most haunted places, strange tales, and unexplained events. American Hauntings is a bi-weekly podcast. You can hear new episodes every other Tuesday, so please tune in to hear our latest episode and take a brand new look at history and hauntings. You can learn more about our podcast and find new episodes on iTunes, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast apps by searching for American Hauntings, or you can go to AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com, where we also have links to Troy's books and information about upcoming tours, events, and haunted happenings. So remember, if you love the show, American Hauntings is more than just this podcast. It's books, tours, events, ghost hunts, and the Haunted America Conference, which you just missed, all of which you can find at our website at AmericanHauntings.net. So get your tickets for next year as soon as you can. Oh, yeah. Well, that's until like January, so we can calm down on that. And if you're one of the people, always be hustling. And if you're one of the people who wish we had a new show every week, well, you can have that. You have the chance to support the podcast by checking out our Patreon page. As a supporter, you can get bonus episodes of the show, t-shirts, great stuff in the mail, and more. We're extremely excited about producing more shows with better equipment, and with your help, we can dedicate more time and resources to making that happen. Take a minute and check it out. We think you'll like what you find at patreon.com slash American Hauntings. You can also find your host, as Troy mentioned earlier, on all the things. Yeah, see you later. Goodbye next time. So long. Till next time. Goodbye. So long. See you later. It's a little different every time.